Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful and grateful to you for the privilege that is ours of assembling ourselves together to worship you in a collective and corporate way. How we bless you, how we praise you. How we lift you up and magnify your name, O God, because you are worthy of praise and honor and glory and adoration, affection and love and commitment and service and praise and we give it all to you. We confess our many sins before you. We pray you forgive us and cleanse us even now from all unrighteousness. Now, God, as I stand to proclaim your word, I pray for a fresh anointing, a fresh enablement, a fresh empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Use me now in such a way that everything that I will do and everything that I will say will only be done and only be said so that you'd receive the glory. We know that whenever your word goes forward that our common enemy in the invisible realm will do all that he can to hinder your word. So in the name of Jesus, we pray that every scheme and every plan of the enemy would be canceled out. And we say, have your way, Lord, in us, through us, and among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this indeed is the day the Lord has made. We ought to rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you <clears throat> are glad to be in the house of the Lord today? The psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let me take this moment certainly to recognize the dean, Dean Steele, and certainly to all of the, uh, the worship leader, Dr. Gregory, to the student leadership of this wonderful conference. It is just a joy to be on the campus of Truett Seminary once again here at Baylor. And it is just a joy to see each and every one of you <clears throat> here today. I certainly ask and pray, ask and encourage you to pray for me today as I share uh, with you from the Word of God. But I realize the leadership could have invited so many others to come and share at a moment like this. And so I want to take this moment to again express <clears throat> my thanks and my appreciation for this invitation. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11. And I want to read into your hearing verses 1 through 9. Genesis Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. That, that's all right. You can stand with me today as I read the Word of God. There's nothing necessarily uh, spiritual about standing when the Bible is read. If nothing more, it gets the blood running warmer in your veins. So that at the end of the day, whatever happens here today, I can be able to truthfully say, I stood them up. I had them on their feet. <laughs> Here's how my Bible reads. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower 
whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Look again at verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. I want to talk about the irony of greatness. You may be seated. When I was in elementary school, we were required to read a short story by James Thurber called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It was Sturber's most famous story that was written or published in 1939 and was made into a movie in 1947. In the story, it is a story about a mild-mannered, unassuming, ordinary man named Walter Mitty who spent more time in heroic daydreams than he did in the real world. While driving his wife to Waterbury, Connecticut for their regular shopping and his wife's appointment at the beauty parlor, he had a series of, of heroic daydreams. He dreamed that he was a pilot of a U.S. Navy uh, a boat in a storm. He dreamed that he was a surgeon performing a one-of-a-kind surgery. He dreamed that he was a cool assassin testifying in a courtroom. He dreamed that he was a Royal Air Force uh, pilot volunteering for a daring secret suicide mission to bomb an ammunition dump. And as the story ends, Mitty imagines himself facing a firing squad, courageous to the very end. But, the, but when he awakened from his dreams, he had to live with the fact that he was none of the above. No, he was just an ordinary, unassuming man named Walter Mitty. And the irony of his story is that while daydreaming, Walter Mitty was fearless and heroic. But in reality, he was a weak and timid man who was bossed around by his wife. In a real sense, friends, I suppose that Walter Mitty is a metaphor for anyone who would attempt to, uh, to, to make others feel or believe that he is something that he is not. 
Midi's problem is the same problem that many of us grapple with today, that he couldn't escape his ordinariness. Therefore, he dreamed of being great. Greatness for some people, friends, is an obsession. It is their life's consuming ambition to be great, to be popular, to be powerful, to be wealthy, to be the best. And it matters not what our profession, one's profession may be. All of us, if we're honest about it, have had our Walter Mitty moments, haven't we? Haven't you daydreamed about being great? A great preacher celebrated by your colleagues. A great pastor of a mega church. A great writer nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. A great, a great lawyer litigating the case of your life. A, a great business person making a whole lot of money a great professional athlete celebrated by millions of fans. All of us have had moments where we dreamed and daydreamed about being great. But the greatness, that, but when greatness becomes an obsession, it can lead you down a dangerous path of destruction because the question then becomes, what lines, what moral lines are you willing to cross? And what price are you willing to pay in your pursuit of greatness? Unfortunately, some people are willing to cross any line in order to have greatness and power. Psychological professionals call them megalomaniacs. Megalomania is a psychopathological condition that is characterized by delusional fantasies of wealth, power, and omnipotence. Alexander the Great was a megalomaniac. He became king of Macedonia after his father Philip was assassinated. He was uh, tutored by Aristotle. Uh, he conquered the ancient world. He was worshipped as a god and he cried salty tears because he had no more worlds to conquer. Adolf Hitler was a megalomaniac. He also had dreams of, of ruling the world, but his dreams were crushed by the allies. And he ironically ended up dying from a self-inflicted gunshot from his own pistol. And the irony of both of these men's story, story is that while they reached for the world, they ended up with nothing. Many centuries before Alexander the Great, Many centuries before Adolf Hitler, in the post-Diluvian world, there lived a whole society of megalomaniacs. They said, let us build ourselves a city and the tower whose top reaches to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now on the surface, one might ask, what's wrong with what they desire to do? What's wrong with human industrialization and ingenuity? I mean, to build an impressive city and a tower. What's wrong with wanting to do something great? I mean, were they not endowed by their creator with a free will? 
Didn't they have the right to choose their own path and chart their own course? What's wrong with what they wanted to do? The case, the case could be made that the act of building a city and a tower are not necessarily sinful acts in and of themselves. It is not wrong to be ambitious. It is not wrong to have goals of accomplishing something that others would call great. But the more question that I raise today is why did they want to do it? It's stated in the text. They said we want to make a name for ourselves. The people of Babel were wrong, friends, because their motives were misguided. The Babel incident I submit to you is not simply uh, about humankind being ambitious, but it is about the unbridled ambition of a people who were determined to have their own way. It is about what can happen in our relationship with God when human ambition goes awry. I submit to you, friends, the people of Babel are a picture of all of us. They had a collective Walter Mitty moment. They dreamed of greatness. But as in Thurber's story, they discovered, friends, that it had its share of irony. There is a certain irony, if you will, an inevitable irony about seeking human greatness. The greatness for which we seek, often, more often than not, ends up being a mirage. And so come with me. Come with me this morning and let's look, if you will, at the ironic movements of this passage. Come with me and let's look together at the, at the irony and the humor if you will, with which, and the, the humor with which, with which the writer tells this story. Come with me and look, if you will, at the satire that the writer uses to tell this familiar story. I just want to share the ironic movement. There are several, but I'll just share three. First of all, friends, there is the irony of using your gift against the gift giver. Verse 1 says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. The whole population of the earth had only one language, one speech, literally one tongue, one lip, if you will, which suggests that God had to, only had to tell them in their one language what he wanted them to do. He said in Genesis 9 and 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But as the people of Babel passed through the land of Shinar, according to verse 2, they, in direct defiance of what God told them to do, decided that they were going to settle down and build there. Three times in the text, they stated there their intentions. Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let us Build ourselves a city and a tower, a city whose tower reaches the, the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. They were using language of, the, of creation. They were using language of Genesis 1. 
But God said, let us. They were using language that was too big for the britches they were wearing. They were acting as if they were God. But only God has the right to declare, let us. Not, not, not once. Not once did they give consideration to what God wanted them to do. They were only concerned about doing what they wanted to do. They wanted to build a city, but God wanted to build the nation. They wanted to build up a tower, but God wanted them to spread out across the face of the earth. They wanted industrialization and God wanted repopulation. And, and friends, and friends, they were so gifted, they were so ingenious, that they would allow no impediment to stop them from doing what they wanted to do. In the land of Shinar, they had no natural limestones with which to build their city. But these smart Alex said, no problem for us. We've got the ingeniousness. We, we have the giftedness. We have the knowledge to be able to make our own brick. We will use the natural resources of the land. The bitumen and the asphalt from martyr. We will allow nothing to stop us from building ourselves a city. Let us bake bricks, make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let us use the natural resources of the land to make it happen. You see, they were using their giftedness, their sense of intelligence against the one who had given them the gift in the first place. Why? Why were they using their giftedness against their gift giver? Maybe it was out of a sense of, a false sense of security. Uh, you know, they had just come through a flood. <laughs> and they perhaps said, now we know what God told us in Genesis 9, that he would never destroy the earth again uh, with, with, with a flood. And that he gave us a promise that whenever we see his rainbow in the sky, that's a constant reminder that I won't destroy the world with a flood. But they said, we're not so sure God will keep his word. So let's build ourselves some high ground. Let's get high enough above the fray so if God doesn't keep his word, we won't drown again. Maybe. Maybe, maybe they use their giftedness against the gift giver, friends, because of a, of a false sense of security. But, but maybe, maybe, maybe they use their giftedness against the gift giver out of a false sense of spirituality. They said, let us build ourselves a tower, a ziggurat. Let's build ourselves a tower whose top reaches the heavens. And let's build ourselves a shrine so that we can worship the God of our choosing. And let's build our ziggurat so tall that it dominates the skyline of the city. Whatever, else, whatever reason they had, friends, they were using their sense of giftedness against the one who had given them the gift in the first place. They wanted to be great, friends, but the problem with these people is that they wanted to be great without God. Here, friends, 
is a picture of what human ambition looks like. It is a picture of a people whose sole aim was about ingratiating and empowering themselves. It is a person who uses his giftedness or her giftedness in direct defiance against the person who had given them the gift in the first place. Who uses his gift or her gift not to glorify God but to glorify himself. Here friends is the problem of Godless greatness. So, so you want to be a great preacher. My question today is why? So, so you want to be a great pastor of a mega church. Why? Why do you want to do it? Is it so that God can get more glory from your life? Or is it because it's the babble in you? That wants to make a name for yourself. So you want to make a whole lot of money. Why? Is it so that you can use your resources to advance the kingdom of God? Or is it if you're honest? Because you want to make a name for yourself. May I make an announcement in here today? All of us got some babble in us. And the babble that's in me and the babble that's in you, if you're not careful, it'll make you use your gift against the gift giver. Haven't you heard preachers who get up behind the sacred desk and butcher the Bible in order to get a cheap amen? Using their giftedness against the one who had given them the gift in the first place. There is the irony of using your gift against the gift giver. But wait a minute, there's another ironic movement in the text. Secondly, there, there's the irony of trying to be big when little's got you. Verse 5 says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. Uh, the, the, the narrator adds, if you will, a bit of comic relief. He lampoons their false estimation of their own greatness. He, if you will, he brilliantly and humorously writes in satiric fashion as he exposes the irony of their pursuit of false greatness. They intended to build a tower that was so tall and so impressive uh, that, that, that it would incite shock and awe responses in everybody who saw it. You do know that ancient Babel is the site of modern day Baghdad. And the original shock and awe did not happen with the Iraq war. No, no. We have here in this text the original shock and awe campaign 
They thought they were going to build a city that was so tall and so impressive, if you will, until even God, when he saw it, would have to put his hand over his mouth and cry out, OMG. But the narrator humorously and satirically says, but the Lord came down to see it. As high and as tall and as impressive a tower they thought it was going to be in the sight of God. It was so small, so tiny, so, so insignificant that the narrator tells us God had to anthropomorphically come down to see it. Don't miss the humor in that. It's like God said, let me get my glasses because I can't see this thing. Our, our so-called, our so-called big plans are so small in the sight of God. Kind of reminds me of Gulliver's Travels. You remember Gulliver's Travel? Lemuel Gulliver was ended up shipwrecked and was unconscious. When he came to, uh, to, to consciousness, he discovered that he, he couldn't move because he'd been tied down. And the irony is that he was tied down by people who were only six inches tall. <laughs> it is really a satire of Great Britain. So they took uh, Lemuel Gulliver as their prisoner, carried him into a place called Lilliput. <laughs> And there they put Gulliver on trial and they, uh, they convicted him of high treason. And Gulliver, who could, who could put those six-inch men in his pocket, who could crush them with one hand had he wanted to, he found himself being chased out of town by men who were only six inches tall. The people at Babel must have looked like six-inch tall people in the sight of God. This story is about a little bitty people trying to evict a big God out of their lives. This story, friends, is a story of mutiny. This is a story of high treason against God. It's a story of people who were trying to erase God from their midst. Oh, friends, I want to suggest to you today that the people of Babel were planning a post-God world. Let us build ourselves a city and the tower, a ziggurat, whose top reaches to heaven. Let's wall ourselves in and wall God and God's agenda out. But we see Babel happen, happening even today. Where this world is planning, as I speak, a post-God world. That's why relativism is the order of the day. That the individual decides what is right and what is wrong. 
And the world is saying we don't need God. And we don't need God's Bible. And we certainly don't need a big mouth preacher telling us what's right and what's wrong. We don't need God in our, in our homes and we don't need God in our business. We can decide how this world ought to be without a God. You're planning a post-God world. A post-God world that decides to define and redefine traditional uh, traditional um, aspects of our society. <laughs> but this babblism has, infil has infiltrated the church. Segments of our Christian faith are placing the American flag over the cross of Christ. This nationalism, religious nationalism, ain't nothing but the spirit of Babel. A post-God world. Ah, my friends, I want to suggest to you that some people today live by the mantra of these people. I'll violate whatever God tells me to do as long as it'll make me great. As long as people will applaud me. You know, I'm a preacher, so let me say this about us. We are compliment addicts. We, we, we come to church every seven days to get a new fix of compliments. To be told what a great preacher, what, what a great sermon, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we begin to believe our press report. And when we don't get those compliments, uh, we, we, we have withdrawals. Uh, making big plans without God with your little self. That is the irony of trying to be big when little's got you. But there's one last ironic movement. I could share more, but just one more. And it is this. It is the irony of God having to save you from yourself. One can only imagine the utter frustration and fist-pounding agitation that the workers at the Babel construction site must have had that day when God confused their language. Architects who just the day before had been reading blueprints together were now unable to understand each other. A man shouted to a worker, hey man, uh, bring, bring me a hammer. And, and the man brought him a saw. He said, a hammer, fool, and the man brought him a piece of wood. And this confusing uh, sight kept repeating itself all day long until finally everybody quit the job and walked off the site and it was left with a half-built construction site. And the Bible says when they left the job, they all scattered across the face of the earth, which is ironically what God wanted in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
does this, um, this half-built, deserted construction site mean? I believe that it is a monument of humankind's sinful ambitions. And it is a memorial of God's overriding providence. It is a sign of both God's judgment and God's mercy at the same time. That abandoned construction site is ultimately about God having to save humankind from themselves. Why did he do that? I'm glad you asked. He had to save them from themselves first because they were sliding off a slippery slope. Verse 6 says, the Lord says, behold, there are one uh, people and have, all have one language. And this is the only beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. When you read that verse, it almost sounds like God is insecure. That God is afraid of what humankind, that, God, that humankind could take over from God. But God was not threatened, nor was he insecure. No, notice the language that the writer uses in the next verse, in verse 7. God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they cannot understand another, each other's speech. Remember, friends, they were the ones who disobeyed God. They were the ones who were committing mutiny and high treason against God. But the writer says, God says, let's go down there. That, that's a picture of the grace of God, that he was still willing to go down continually. God says, I've got to go down and keep them from that. I don't know about you, but you ought to thank God that God saves us from ourselves. You ought to thank God that there are some things that God wouldn't let us do. You ought to thank God that God shut some of your plans down because had God not shut it down, it could have destroyed you. He had to save them from themselves because they were sliding off a slippery soap. But secondly, he had to save them from themselves because they were seeking a supreme title. He said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, so that we can be our own God. You know, all of us, there's a part of all humankind that wants to be independent of God. Our fallen nature wants to be independent and free of God. And that's why some people feel like they don't need church today. It said, organized religion is for weak people. We don't need to go to church. That's the message of secular humanism that says you can be your own God, that you don't need God because you're your own God. You can be your own savior, but friend, let me burst somebody's bubble. You're not qualified to be your own savior. If you're gonna be your own savior, here are the qualifications. You gotta be born of a virgin. At the age of 30, you gotta be baptized by John in the Jordan. Then for three years, you got to go around doing good, healing the sick, raising the dead, unstopping death ears. You got to be crucified on Friday, go to hell on Saturday, and get up again on Sunday. Now, until you can do that, you're not qualified to be your own savior. They were seeking a supreme title, the title of self-gods. But lastly God, uh, lastly, God had to save them from themselves because they were settling for substandard greatness. 
to the people of Babel, the name Babel means gate of the gods. But when God came down and confused their language, that same word means gibberish and confusion. God was trying to show them that, great, that the greatness for which they were seeking and aspiring was a substandard greatness. The inhabitants of Babel stated their desire in verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. But God stated God's desire in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. Come here, Abram. I want you to leave your family. Leave your kindred and go looking for a city. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Look at that. The people of Babel wanted a city when God wanted to give them a nation. Why do we settle for cities when God has something much bigger in mind for us? And then, and, and then he said, Abram, let me tell you, the people of Babel said they wanted to make a name for themselves. But in Genesis 12 and 2, God says, Abram, I will make your name great. In other words, Abel, Abel, Abram, in you, I've got a fix for the problems of Babel. I'm going to start it with you, but I'm going to complete it in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Because brothers and sisters, when Pentecost came, everybody was speaking in different languages, but everyone could understand what the other person was saying. God says, I've got a fix for the problems of Babel. From Genesis 11 to Acts chapter 2, the languages were confused. But in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the church joined God's agenda, the languages were brought together. Do I have a witness in here? But what was so special about that Pentecost? They had seen Pentecost come and go for a thousand times. That Pentecost in Acts 2 was special because it was the birthday of his church. And on the birthday of his church, God says, I've got a fix for all the flaws of Babel, all the sins of Babel. I'm going to fix it on the day of Pentecost. I don't know about you, friends, but as I go to my seat, I don't know about you, but if you're going to be great, let God make you great. If you're going to be important, let God make you important. Because the reality is that only God deserves to be called great. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displays. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee 